Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduti, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. I'm going to go straight into what we've got coming up on this week's show because there's quite a lot to get through. So coming up, keep up, watch out, or why the people next door have always mattered. The historian Arnold Hunt considers two studies of early modern neighbourly behaviour. But first... 50 years ago, more or less to the day, E.M. Forster's final novel, Morris, was published. Almost 60 years before that, Forster had written the first draft, knowing even then that this love story between two men, the well-heeled Morris and the working-class Alec, who gives him all he had lacked in his previous sexless relationship, would not be published during his lifetime. Peter Parker, the biographer of J.R. Ackerley and Christopher Isherwood, among others, and the editor of an anthology of queer life in London between 1945 and 1967, has revisited that novel for us this week and joins us now to tell us more. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The gestation was pretty protracted, wasn't it? And crucially, as I said, he never seriously thought it would or in a way should appear uh, in, in his lifetime. So what's the story there? Well, he started it in uh, 1913. There's a very well-known story that he tells in a sort of afterward, he wrote the, the novel, in which he visited Edward Carpenter, the sort of utopian figure up in Sheffield. And while there, Carpenter's boyfriend uh, just pinched him on the bum, basically. And he said that this sort of, this went straight to his, uh, to his imagination and he sort of conceived the novel then. The other interesting thing is that, that Carpenter... Uh, was very middle class, and his lover, George Merrill, was, was born in the slums of Sheffield. So, in fact, there was a, a relationship there that had lasted for 20 years and would go on after that, that showed that uh, it was possible to have a homosexual relationship at that period that did cut across the class divide. So he, he went back, in fact, to Harrogate, where he was staying with his tiresome old mother, who was at the spa there, and immediately began writing it. He had some setbacks. The person who Clive is based on, H.O. Meredith, uh, whom he'd been at Cambridge with, um, was thoroughly bored by the book when showed it, and that checked Forster, but he did manage to finish it by July 1914. Um, It had a very troublesome ending. It had an epilogue. The epilogue had um, Morris and Alec uh, becoming woodcutters in some sort of imaginary greenwood, and everybody thought it was ridiculous and didn't work at all. So he sort of put the whole thing on one side. Then he returned to it after he'd done war service with the Red Cross in Alexandria and then started rewriting it again. And then he kept revisiting it right up until 1960 when he did the final version. I suppose one of the main points is that he could have published it. I mean, this what you're describing isn't so much a question necessarily of of him readying the work for publication as, as a fear as to whether the 
the readers were ready for it as well. That kind of lies behind his 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 decision in the end, doesn't it? I mean, other other books, as you point out, about gay relationships had appeared, but he was very resistant because of of a, a concern about how it would be received. Yes, he was. He, I mean, one of the things was he said he was determined that it should be a, have a happy ending. The novel should have a happy ending, and that's one of the things he thought would stand in the way of publication. That as he put it, two men can defy the world and not be punished for it. Because a lot of novels about uh, homosexual life did, I mean, there was a whole trend of them sort of ending in suicide or disgrace or imprisonment, which of course happened in real life. But the idea of a happy ending was absolutely essential to him. He said, I wouldn't have bothered to write the book otherwise. And he'd also been quite closely involved with a number of other books that had been successfully prosecuted for obscenity. Um, which didn't necessarily mean that they were explicit, but that they they had a homosexual theme or or even a heterosexual theme that was was deemed um, unpublishable. But he did prepare the book for p- final publication in 1960, by which time, of course, quite a few gay novels had been published. Um, some of them, indeed, with happy endings. Uh, thinking of uh, Mary Reynolds' The Charioteer, which is one of my absolute favourites. I think it's a wonderful novel, and it's also about. Um, people who um, had been at at Dunkirk. So it's not sort of about, as they tended to be sometimes sort of fey window dressers, but these were sort of battle weary men. Um, So it showed that it was possible to to, um, have a homosexual novel with a happy ending. But his reputation was very, very high. and, And someone of his literary standing publishing a book on which even, um, in 1960, when he finished it, would have been considered an incredibly controversial uh, topic and it would put a lot of people off. And one can see the reasons why he was fearful of publication, though he often said he was ashamed of funking it, as he put it. Um, I love the idea that it's, that it's the happiness that's the revolutionary, the really daring thing to show, that you're allowed to show the things ending in, in misery and that's just about OK, but actually showing a happy relationship that works. Do you think that's why the goosing, the, the, the bumpinching was so <laughs> revelatory in a way? Because it's, so, it's, it's such a, a, a strong image, isn't it? Because it's very gentle, it said. It's like it's a little joyful. Gentle. It's yes. really joyful. Do you think that was because of the sort of ease and, the, the, you know, the, the, the person who, who pinched him or patted him, he was just at ease. He was fine. Everything was yes. all right. It was the happy ending. I think so. And I, I'm forced to characteristic your remarks. Um, I understand he did it to a lot of people. So it wasn't so forced. It was <laughs> he just, just did it to case. everyone. Everyone but, got through the door, got, yes, it, got a goose. Not everyone went off and wrote a novel after it. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I, I think as the, the, the whole idea of, of the happy ending. And I, I also think, I mean, the happy ending did cause all sorts of problems in a way that um, had it been a heterosexual relationship, it wouldn't be. The happy ending is what people expect from a novel about a relationship in, in heterosexual terms. And I think even in 1971, when it was published, I mean, some of the remarks of the critics about, you know, this it's merely wish fulfillment and a fantasy. Well, to some extent, of course, it was because he, he always said that, you know, the trouble is this book can't be published until my death or England's. And even in 1971, one gets a sense from some of the critics that they just thought, oh, it's sentimental, um, which they wouldn't have said had it been, you know, someone being carried off into the sunset, a man carrying a woman off into the sunset or vice versa, indeed. And I think that, that the happy ending, it's why he wrote it, as he said, but it's what has led it to be underestimated, I think. I mean, it's not as much as though they don't go through a great many difficulties before the happy ending. But the logistics of the happy ending did cause him all sorts of difficulties. And, and Isherwood, um, Christopher Isherwood, was sort of instrumental in helping him in 1952 to start revising and putting in an extra chapter in which, after Alec attempts to blackmail Morris in the British Museum, there's a new chapter put in where they retire to a hotel for the night. And Isherwood put that in. And Isherwood was one of those people, he wrote to Gore Vidal when Gore Vidal published the um, the city and the pillar which in its original version um it's about a, a gay man who finds his childhood love or his his adolescent love and tries to seduce him and in one version he kills him in the other version he rapes him and Ishwood castigated Vidal for saying you know could we not have all these miserable endings because it 
makes people think that this is what happens in homosexual life. And it isn't necessarily like that. There are lots of people who do form lasting and happy relationships. It's so interesting, this this matter of the ending, though, I think, especially because it's Forster. And so we think of that line in aspects of the novel where, you know, he wishes the novelist didn't have this need for uh, a resolution and he, he wishes that they could just stop when they get muddled or bored. He says, alas, he has to round things off. And usually the characters go dead while he's at work. And so you, we just have this sense now because of what you've described of these these subsequent revisions where he's just really struggling with how to to give us the happy ending at the same time as, as not letting it go limp, I suppose. And then things had to change in his own life before he could find his way to that, didn't they? Yes. And I, I mean, right early on, I think to Goldsworthy, Lowe's Dickinson, there's a series of very touching letters where he defends the happy ending and saying he got fed up with killing people off in his novels. And he said, you know, with just a little bit more luck, it could have happened. But of course, as you say, um, in 1930, he met Bob Buckingham, the policeman, who really became the centre of his emotional life thereafter. And um, Bob and his wife, May, um, they somehow accommodated this cuckoo in their nest. Um, I remember I was when I was writing, I think, my biography of J.R. Ackley, I went to see May Buckingham. I also asked her about Isherwood. And I, did, I saw her several times. And I remember her saying, you know, oh, dear, you're so forced. He couldn't, he couldn't even run a bath without letting it overflow. And if we went anywhere in the car, oh, oh, yes, I had to sit in the back. Old Morgan would be sitting up in the front next to Bob. I mean, she was remarkable. But it, it was a sort of, it was Forster's own happy ending, really. And um, when he wrote the first draft of the book, he hadn't actually had sex with anyone. And it was when he was in Alexandria with the Red Cross and first of all, had a casual encounter with a soldier on a beach, a sort of anonymous sexual encounter. He described it as parting from respectability, but then met this um, Egyptian tram driver with whom he had a, a sort of a very fulfilling sexual relationship. And he said afterwards, you know, I wish I'd known about this when I was first writing Morris. And there's no doubt at all that the relationship with Muhammad al-Adl, the uh, tram conductor, certainly fed into the book in a, in a sort of curious way. And he'd said, uh, he said, you know, I, I'm so lucky to have had this happiness. And he said, I sort of knew about it before, but not in this way. And I'm sure that's referring to the relationship he had at Cambridge with the, the man who Clive is based on. So in other words, he was saying I had this sort of platonic relationship. So I sort of knew about love. But until I actually had a, a sexual relationship with someone, um, I didn't know how happy one could be. And that really is the crux of the novel that the sexual relationship with Alec cures him of his uh, feelings of guilt about being homosexual, cures him of his snobbery about class and on all his sort of rather dreary opinions that Forster has great fun sending up in the course of the novel. It does seem to be that, that class is really important in it, isn't it? Because he is sort of liberated from it isn't he? That's that he finds a, a liberation. The problem is with the people who seem to be sort of trapped in their ideas. Yes, I mean, in Clive in particular. I mean, Forster said somewhere that oh dear, he he ended up by treating Clive quite badly because he got very fed up with him. Uh, I mean, the novel ends with Morris going to tell Clive what has happened with because Alec was Clive's gamekeeper. That's how he met him, and um, he tells an appalled Clive what what. Uh, happens and the novel ends with this wonderful image of of Clive sort of shutting up the house and saying he he's going off and wondering how to conceal the truth from his wife so Forster not only has the happy ending but he contrasts it with the the um obviously not terribly satisfactory relationship that um his former lover has now he's become as it were heterosexual if this isn't too much of a digression there's a there's a suggestion isn't there that D.H. Lawrence was let's say inspired by um by the the relationship with a with a gamekeeper yes that's right because actually uh, unlikely as it may seem when he'd written the first draft he did show it to various people most of whom uh were were homosexual friends and, and colleagues um but he'd also just met um dh lawrence with whom he had a very brief friendship that fell apart um, largely because Lawrence couldn't really understand homosexuality. Uh, so it seems rather odd. And I don't think there's actually any proof, but it seems very likely 
that um, Lawrence did see Morris and uh, then decided that he could have a gamekeeper too, um, <laughs> having an affair with someone of, uh, of a different class. You would have um, thought he might just change the job so that it wasn't <laughs> quite so obvious. Yes, it is. It is. It's very curious. I mean, someone has written a whole paper about the similarities between the two novels, which is, is fairly convincing. But frankly, I think Morris is a, a rather better novel than... Um, yeah. And of course, <laughs> we all know how Lady Chatterley uh, played out in the court. So um, yes, uh, his yes. concerns over Morris were probably very well founded. <laughs> I think one of the reviewers, in fact, said, pointed out similarities and the differences that, that uh, Morris is art and, and um, Lady Chatterley is balderdash or words to Perhaps mm. there was something about gamekeepers. It's this wonderful story, isn't there, about um, Lady Chatley being reviewed in in some sort of country magazine, and it's ent- the review is entirely about how accurate it is on rearing pheasant chicks, <laughs> rather <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> Um, okay, well, back to Morris then. Uh, so it, it remained unpublished until 1971. That was a year after Forster's death. Yes. Um, so I suppose I have two questions. Um, one, had he had he left specific instructions about its publication, i.e. that he, he did definitely want it to come out, but only once he was gone, uh, or had he left it entirely in the hands of his executor? And, and two, how was it received? What he did was he did, he, he, as I say, in 1960, he made the final corrections and he wrote the terminal note, as it's called, which is an appendix about um, how the book came about, about his hesitations, about um, writing it, about his determination to have an happy ending and, 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 and actually about um, the Wolfenden report. In, he was very sort of concerned about the Wolfenden report. Um, and that was being very much discussed in the press as he was doing his final revisions, because although the, the report came out in, was it 57 or 58? And it didn't go into law till 67. So there was this long period where it was being discussed. But he was he definitely left instructions um, and the terminal note is part of that. But he also gave Christopher Isherwood the rights in the book for American publication. So he'd actually drawn up a legal letter for it to be published in America and for Isherwood to, to have the rights, but to use them to set up a bursary which would allow British writers who couldn't afford to to go to America for research or whatever. And in terms of its reception, well, I suppose it was mixed, but it was mostly quite negative. It was. And and you can see the problems, you know, that had the book. I mean, people kept saying how dated it was. And of course, you could say that of any of Forster's books, because they were all written, you know, before 1926. So by 1971, they might all have seemed dated. But the difference being that, of course, those books were published when they were written. So they had sort of they were period pieces, whereas this was sprung upon the public very, very belatedly. And society had undergone enormous changes, not least homosexuality had been legalized or partially legalized by then or partially decriminalized. And there were, say, reviews are mixed. When I was looking at them, I I was pleased to see there were some that gave him credit, but most of them at the very least said, oh, it's not up to his usual standards. And Cyril Connolly actually was was um, the one person who said, you know, this is a this is um, a writer, a novelist at the height of his powers. But he did then go on to say, but it has fatally dated. But he did say, you know, it could, had it been published at the time, have taken its place between Howard's End and A Passage to India. But a lot of people like Frank Kermode thought it was very thin and uh, Noel Annan sort of agreed. There was a, a general agreement. It just didn't have the substance of the other novels. And I, I mean, people have said this is just sheer homophobia and it was just, you know, people didn't like it because it, it was a gay novel. I think that that certainly had a slight influence, but I think it, it was a sort of discomfort about the whole thing that, that, you know, here was this great novelist who had written this, this novel that clearly did have elements of, of wish fulfillment in it. But I think 50 years on, we can see how good the novel is. And I mean, it's one I've read, I should think four or five or more times. And it seems to me to get better every time I read it. One of the, and one of the criticisms, and, you know, I, I expect this, this would have been the one that would have perhaps wounded Forster most, was about his attitude to his characters and to their love um, and to the, the rightness of it, I suppose. Yes, I mean, there were there were several critics who, it seems to me, just simply didn't understand the novel at all, because they complained that 
there wasn't, as it were, enough sex in it. The Forster didn't really sort of have sort of a full description of what Morris and Alec got up to in bed. But it was a it was very much a novel of its period. And and really, I don't think that the, the problem there was they, they extrapolated from this that Forster didn't really approve of homosexuality or indeed sex at all. And and we know now from Forster's letters and diaries that in, indeed you know, he did have a very fulfilling sex life and, and was often writing to the newspapers saying you know, homosexuality should be decriminalised and it's ridiculous and the, the laws should be changed. It seems an extraordinary accusation, really, for especially given that, that as you say, he's writing his novels in the 1910s and 1920s. It's, it, it seems a little bit short-sighted to say there's not enough sex in it. <laughs> why, why isn't there loads of sex? I'm sure they didn't say that about the other novels. They didn't say there's not enough sex between the men and the women, so he must not like it. I mean, Yes, well, I regret to say that the review in the TLS said he didn't oh. think much of the sex in the other, other novels either, and, and this okay. was no better. But then he went <laughs> on to say that Forster clearly found sex repulsive and sordid, and how he would have got that from reading the book. Well, uh, exactly. Which, as Cyril Connolly said, is a lyrical book. The whole point is that that it's the not having sex with with Clive Mm. that makes the relationship a sort of impoverished relationship. And it is that whole thing where he does have sex and a, a fulfilling sexual relationship with Alec. But of course, he has to overcome a lot of his own prejudices. And there are lots of places in the book. It's where he goes to, to attempt a, a cure uh, from a doctor, a, a GP who's a friend of the family and says, I'm an unspeakable of the Oscar Wilde sort. And I mean, Morris, in his own voice, talks about, you know, how he's been degraded by sex and this. But of course, eventually he overcomes all that and he overcomes all his other silly prejudices. And that's really the point of it. The hypnotist, I think he's, he's described as, isn't he, who, who, would, who would have this cure. Even he is given lines that, that sort of seem to suggest that to, to read um, the novel as being against true gay love is is almost a willful misreading because even he says things like England has always been disinclined to accept human nature just a very very straight and beautiful line (laughs) yes uh yes I mean he's he's quite a good character and he does say you know I don't succeed in as it were curing um by hypnotism curing homosexuality (laughs) but another thing about that is that um Morris wants to be cured of his homosexuality but once he's had sex with Alec, um, the hypnotism really just goes to pieces. He can't concentrate on mm-hmm. anything. Well, he's found example. his cure. Yes, he, exactly. He's, he's, or he's found a solution to his dilemma, should we put it like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, people were, um, the research I've been doing for this anthology of, of, of queer life in, in London between the war and, and decriminalisation, I mean, the amount of, even in the 50s and 60s, when Forster was revising the book, um, the number of leading psychiatrists, supposed experts in homosexuality who who gave testimony to the Wolfenden Committee, the number of them who do talk about whether it's curable or not. And it was still believed all this time later that it was a condition that could be cured in some way. Um, but of course, the point of the book is that that, that Morris doesn't realise is that he doesn't want to be cured because he's, he's found the solution. Mm. When did you first read it, Peter? Can you recall what you made of it that, that first time? It came out in 1971, and I think I first read it when a very kind tutor at university <laughs> said, this is a book you should read. So I think that would have been in the early 70s. I remember thinking, oh, some of the stuff that Connolly mentions about the ragging that goes on between um, Forster and Clive, and it all does sound sort of slightly archaic. And um, I mean, Isherwood was very interesting about it because when he read it. Forster said, you know, I'm very worried it's dated. Ishwood was reading it in, in the 30s. And I think very wise Ishwood said, why shouldn't it date? But there were aspects of when I read it that did seem faintly absurd. I mean, particularly as a sort of young undergraduate in London, sort of when gay liberation was in full, full flow. But I sort of loved it. And I always remember what I really loved was what he wrote about it in, in the afterward. And At the time, I'd probably not read too many of Forster's other works. I think, like a lot of people, when I first started research on the biography of Ackley and I had to read lots and lots of Forster, I had this idea of him as this sort of 
rather Edwardian maiden aunt figure, which has often been said um, rudely. And it's when I started reading his letters and his diaries, I realized that really he was, he was much more modern than that and much more relaxed and, and very, very funny. I think Isherwood's description of his, an, him as an anti-heroic hero is absolutely right. There was something heroic about him, even if he didn't publish this, this book. And there's something pretty heroic about writing a book you think will never be published, I think, and actually mm. bothering to finish it. And I think it's nice that, that he has now been re-embraced by a lot of um, contemporary gay writers. Uh, that would really please him, I think. I think he'd be very touched. And you, you touch on that a bit at the, towards the end of your piece, this kind of this this thing of him only recently, really relatively recently recovering from what seems almost a great and unfortunate misunderstanding to be embraced by by newer writers. So perhaps you could just take it away with with some of those just to end the, this lovely conversation. Yes, well, I mean, for example, Damon Gulgut's um, Arctic Summer describes it. It's a novel which is very cleverly um, actually integrates real Forster with Gulgut's own prose. And actually, he does it so well that you can't, without checking, you can't tell where Forster ends and Gulgut begins. But it describes that period where he wasn't writing. And it's a, it's a very touching book. And I, I, I thought it was extremely good. And then, of course, the, there was the Matthew Lopez play Inheritance, this enormously long play in which a group of young uh, contemporary Americans uh, want to tell their stories. And Forster is this sort of figure who actually appears on stage as a sort of guiding light. And he is castigated for not publishing Morris in his lifetime. And he says, you know, it's the one thing I regret. But at the same time, the, the, the novel is the favourite novel of one of the main characters who's the the moral centre of the play, really. And then there's a, a boy who, who sells himself for sex and is sort of terribly damaged and, and young. And he reads the novel and, and he says it's as though Forster is reaching out across the centuries to him and saying, you know, I've been where you've been and I'll be there, I'll be with you. And it's that, I find that immensely moving. And, and I think Forster would, have been, would also have been very touched by this. Another kind of resolution. Um, yes. Well, Peter Parker, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Still to come on the show, two histories of neighbourhoods in Britain cast light on neighbourly love and, well, probably hate in the early modern period. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to early modern neighbours, Lucy, I've been desperate to ask you, I've been wondering about your allotment. Has it been battered beyond recognition by this mad, mad rain that we've been having? It has, I'm afraid. It's, it's uh, poor old thing is in a bit of a sorry state. And um, the, the things that are thriving the most, I hope I'm, as I say, I hope I'm not the only gardener finding this, is the slugs and the snails. They're very, very happy just, yeah, no, I've noticed so gone many. for it in such a big way. I would put in um, young, young vegetable plants and they just they basically would like um, get their knives and forks out and sort of do up their napkins. And they'd be like, thanks very much. And the next time I come, there's nothing there. So I can't um, really go out in the garden these days just because there are so many. I have a it is a phobia of slugs because I get really dizzy when oh. I see them. Gosh, yeah, I would be just falling I over the whole time the if that happened. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. The frogs are loving it, though, so, you know. Goes we have got one around. frog. We surprised each other the other day, so I've got, I'm have got. i pinning my hopes on the one frog. So uh, no pressure. <laughs> it's but going to have to really, have to really do a lot of eating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, either way, I think it's safe to say that it's weather for staying indoors as much as possible. Um, luckily, the Boston Book Festival appears to have preempted that with its annual festival taking place between October 16th and 23rd. Yes, and you don't have to be near Boston, do you? Because it's, well, it's the, it's the hybrid thing again that we were talking about, isn't it? It's, I think it's yeah. all online. but The there whole are thing's also, online. Yeah, but there are also in-person events. So, so you could, you could, you could see that, see all of it online if you wanted to. And it's free, which is, you know, which is great. Always nice. Yeah, and it's got a great big programme, which has got 40-odd sessions, Pulitzer Prize winners. Bob Woodward is going to be there. Is he a Pulitzer Prize winner? I, I think he probably yes. is. Yes. Yes, there you go. National Book Award winners, poets, historians, storytellers, policymakers. I noticed a couple of things. There's a um, Annette Gordon-Reed is is talking about slavery. She's oh, yes. Juneteenth. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Exactly. And there's a brilliant thing that caught my eye. Uh, which is not is not the same sort of thing at all, but it's a session called uh, Middle Grade. I don't know what how old you are if you're in middle grade, so apologies for that. Middle Grade Graphic Novels, Cats versus Dogs. Just a very, very strange. <laughs> how about Frogs versus Slugs? <laughs> well, that probably That's is less sequel. of a crowd pleaser, isn't it, really? <laughs> and there's lots of, you know, so you can have Bob, Wood, Bob Woodward or Annette Gordon-Reed or Cats versus Dogs or anything in between, I reckon. I like the idea of anyone, any any kind of the format of any panel is something versus something. So it's Bob Woodward versus Annette Gordon-Reed, <laughs> Slugs yes. versus Frogs, anyone you I, can find versus someone else. That is not the event. That's not what's happening. No, it's absolutely not. It's going to be much better than that. Much better than that. Um, And all the information on that is at bostonbookfest.org. We're going to turn our attention now to something which has been part of society for the longest time. We've all got them, unless we're pretty wealthy or live very remotely, and we all have opinions about them, ranging from love to hate, I imagine, and we are them ourselves, crucially. Now, this all sounds a bit cryptic, but really, um, it's the most normal thing in the world. Neighbours. And I will spare you the Australian soap theme tune, don't worry. Um, This week, the historian Arnold Hunt has reviewed two books for us about early modern neighbours in the 16th and 17th centuries, and guess what? Some of this stuff might sound familiar. We're delighted that Arnold can join us all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, which sounds like a lovely place to be uh, sitting here in grey, rainy London. Arnold, thank you very much for talking to us. It is a lovely place to be and thank thank you for having me. Not at all. Um, Now, you start your your, um, fascinating piece by 
by talking about the lockdowns, uh, the, 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 which is a very recent past, of course. How, and how did you think that affected the idea of neighbourhood? Well, we've all had, had the same experience, I think, haven't we, of um, having to, having to work, work from home and being confined in our own houses a lot. And I think we've all felt the, uh, both, both of the good and the bad sides of that. But one thing it does mean is that, is that you can't get away from your neighbours for better or for worse. Yeah, so there was a sense of, in the sense of there's a sense of community with people coming together to help each other, but then also the, I think you said there's been also lots of extra complaints about noise and things like that. It, it's kind of amplified everything, do you think, about neighbours? Yes, I don't know what your experience of working from home was during the during the lockdown last year. I suppose the big the big memory for me was clap for our carers. Thursday evenings at eight o'clock, and we all emerged rather nervously onto our doorsteps, a bit like hobbits emerging from their burrows. And it became quite an occasion in my road where I live in London. We would all wave to each other from a safe distance from our doorsteps, and um, somebody down the road would let off a rocket and we would all applaud. It was a very welcome moment of, um, of neighbourly togetherness in the middle of what could be a very, a very isolating time. And yet there, there is the other side of neighbourhood that one is trapped at home and a lot of people were complaining that there they were in, you know, in, in small flats with noise coming through the walls, uh, no sense of privacy. So it was an experience of the best of neighbourhood and also the worst of neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. Which really makes you realise how much like a marriage it is, the whole thick and thin part of it. Mm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, and you also refer... Um, in your piece, to an important social history from the year 2000, Bowling Alone, which documented Americans doing exactly that, going out bowling on their own, uh, when perhaps, you know, 30, 40 years previous to that, they might have gone out with with, with neighbours or people who live nearby. But nostalgia about neighbourhoods not being as close as they used to be, that is in itself an age-old thing, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Putnam's book called um, Bowling Alone came out in 2000s, and essentially, he was arguing that we were there was what he called an erosion of social capital, um, less face-to-face interaction. Um, we were less likely to hang out with our neighbours, less likely even to know our neighbours. And I guess that, that I can I can intuitively feel the force of that as somebody who grew up uh, on a suburban street in the 1970s, um, where perhaps we there were 20 households on our street and we knew all of them. And now I'm living in a in a similar suburban street in 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 London um, and we know perhaps three three or three or four of our neighbours so when Putnam says we are we are less likely uh, to know our neighbours than our than our parents or our grandparents were um, that feels intuitively correct to me and yet people have been complaining about this for a very long time Uh, and the book I was reviewing by Andy Wood called um, Faith, Hope and Charity uh, gives some marvellous examples of that from the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, people complaining that um, neighbourhood was dead, uh, that charity was growing cold. And he calls this the depressive mood music of the early modern period. So there's a sense in which um, neighbourhood neighborhood has always been in decline. Um, neighbourhood isn't what it was, but then it never was. <laughs> well, in a way, that's quite a cheering thing. If you think, well, if they thought that, then, then you know, probably everyone thinks it all the time. So um, in this book, Faith, Open Charity, um, it, it, it says that you said that the neighbours were bound together um, in the early modern period by a lot of ritual and folk custom, weren't they? Which sounds idyllic, as you as you point out. But in fact, is obviously that has a flip side as well. Yes, perhaps I could uh, I could talk a bit about the book itself, because it really mm. is quite it's quite a remarkable book in some ways. Uh, it's published by an academic press. Uh, it has the trappings of, of an academic book, but it is very, it has a deep sense of passionate engagement with its subjects, which, to be honest, you, you don't find in that many academic books these days. There's the famous saying by um, E.P. Thompson um, about, uh, about wishing to rescue the people of the past from the, the enormous condescension of posterity. Uh, I feel this is a book very much in that in that tradition. Uh, it's trying to it's trying to rescue people from the condescension of of posterity and trying trying to give them their voices back. Um, and he does that in in a very powerful way. I think 
uh, I just want to quote the final, the final few lines. He's writing about a, a story from 1612 about a young woman who's been thrown out of her mother's house in Norfolk for bearing an illegitimate child. And all we, all we know about this is her mother's deposition. And her mother says that just as the sun was rising in the morning, she went out with her daughter Dorothy into the lane uh, beside the house and uh, got on the road, uh, gave her her blessing and went home. And what is become of said Dorothy and her child, she knoweth not. And that's all we have. Uh, and out of this, um, would just ask the question, how would this have felt for Dorothy? What would it have been like to have been thrown out of her, her mother's house, out of her community, out of her neighbourhood? And he, and he ends with this sort of very powerful peroration. Can we ever know, he says, uh, as Dorothy began her journey, she left her neighbourhood behind. Faith passed away. Charity was frozen cold. As Dorothy passed onto the road, Bearing no more than her mother's blessing, she knew that for her, neighbourhood was truly dead. So I think you just get a sense from that. This is this is not your average academic textbook. This is a book which is deeply, passionately engaged with the lives of people in the past. Mm, and it's imaginatively engaged, it sounds like. It's sympathetically, yeah. imaginatively engaged. Yes, very much. And speaking of somebody who, who has done, done their fair share of archival excavation. I can testify to what an achievement it is to, to bring the texts out of the archive and make them speak like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, there were these, he talks about this, I mean, as you say, his, his vision of it is, is, is in a sense, it's a slightly pessimistic one, is it? Because he's, I mean, partly because he focuses, um, he, he, he talks about Dorothy um, I'm just thinking about what bound people together um, at that at that point, and you're saying it was ritual and folk that that also had its 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 downsides, and also religion was a huge part of the bond that held people together. But of course, people still judged others as to whether they felt they were being a good Christian or a bad Christian. That didn't mean everybody behaved well, of course, just because everybody was religious. Well, yes, that's the, that's the fascinating thing about the book. I think it does have this deeply pessimistic side, deeply a deeply dark side. Um, in showing just how just how tough life could be for the poor, and yet if you look at the at the at the introduction, he says he he sees the book as a celebration. That is a surprising word to use. It's a celebration, he says, of how people held their community together in the face of terrible, difficult, and profound pressures. So it has the it has those two sides to it: the 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 dark the dark pessimism of revealing the social cost. Of poverty, but also also try try and show how how neighbourhood was a positive force uh, that could hold communities together. Thinking about the specific period, I mean, I know you, you we we've said that every period thinks it's witness, witnessing the demise of neighbourliness, but were there also changes to the fabric of society in in the early modern period in Britain that that could have led to a weakening of 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 the bonds you know in a similar way I'm thinking to uh technological developments in our time and you know personal security systems or or whatever um as well as religion were there were there changes in I don't know property law for instance that that might have changed the way neighbors related to each other and personal space and so on Absolutely, yes. It's been argued for quite for quite a long time that this was a period of profound social change. What seems to be happening is there is greater uh, social division, particularly in in, in village communities. Um, the richer villages are getting richer, the poorer villages are getting poorer. So there is there is less sense of the community as as an organic whole, and more sense of of the social difference, the social gulf between the rich and the poor. And what also adds to that is the is the development of the poor law, the uh, the welfare system, which means that poverty starts to be regarded as a problem. And I think when the when wealthier people look at their poor neighbours, there's a sense in which they, they see them less as neighbours and more as uh, a potential problem, uh, a social problem, a cost to the welfare system. Mm. Right. So it's that sense that they they're 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 a problem rather than you know we're a society we're a community and they are occupying a, a particular position in that community it's, it's almost as though it's, they've been codified as a problem is that right yes yes some some historians have talked about the the invention of poverty in this period uh, which is not to say that 
uh, there was no, no such thing as poverty before the early modern period, but it's in this period that poverty first starts to be regarded as, as a social problem, uh, as something which has to be dealt with. Mm, it's fascinating. And the, um, the second book that you review, which is Caritas by Katie Barclay, so that looks at the uh, Scottish kind of Puritan Presbyterian communities, um, which seemed very strict, or often run along very strict lines, but um, but she argues, I think, does she, that they were actually they were bound together by love and charity, um, well as the name of her book suggests. Yes, indeed, this book is really a contribution to the of emotions. Um, I mean, if the, if the big question for Andy Wood, how do we capture the voices of the poor? Uh, I think the big question for Katie Barclay is uh, how to how to recover the history of emotions, the history of feelings. And she's looking at, uh, in this book at 17th and 18th century Scotland, where the archives are very good, it, uh, better in some ways than, than for England, um, it, in fact. And her big idea uh, is the idea of the loving community, as she puts it, that the idea that, that early modern Scotland is a society which is structured around the idea of neighbourly love uh, as a means of social cohesion. And as you say, that's, that's quite a surprising argument, uh, because because when, when we think of, uh, of Scotland, we think of this strict and repressive Calvinist society. Um, so to argue that, 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 that it is, it, it's a society founded on the, on the values of love and, and neighbourly love is a fascinating claim. And does she, does she back it up? Does that, because it seems, it's almost seems as though they're, they're, um, they're treating fairly similar subjects, aren't they, the books? But would you say Andy Woods is actually quite dark and it's what happens when you're cast out of your neighbourhood and there's nothing else to fall back on? Whereas Katie Barclay's, it seems to be saying, well, look, in some of them, there's a real sense of charity and the neighbourhood will, will hold you. Yes, there's a fascinating discussion in the book of the idea of loneliness. People in the, in the 18th century clearly had a, had a concept of loneliness. Um, but it's surprisingly difficult to find people who, who say to themselves, I am lonely, I feel lonely. It's not an emotion that people seem to articulate in the way they do now. And she points out that Samuel Johnson's dictionary uh, defines loneliness as a solitude, want of company. So it, it's, about, it's the fact of being on your own. It's not an emotional state or a form of, of longing. Um, the reason for this, she suggests, could be simply that, that in, a, in a society uh, with a stronger sense of neighbourly values, a stronger sense of social cohesion, there is less opportunity for people to feel lonely. Uh, people may be on the edges of community, but they are not separated from community completely. Mm, and that even even among the very poor, there was there was charity. They would help each other in, in as much as they could. Indeed, um, yes. And then, in a way, in your your piece, you you come full circle, don't you? Because you say, in the end, the greatest threat to neighbourhood was not Puritanism, but pandemic. So, what did the plague do to these communities? Well, yes, it was quite an it was quite an uncanny experience in some ways uh, to read these books. They're both recently published, and I assume they, they must both have been written before the start of the pandemic. And yet, in many ways, they seem to echo what we've just been going through. So Wood writes about, about plague and, and pandemic disease as an attack upon the idea of neighbourhood. The idea being that, that when plague strikes, people will shut their doors, uh, close their doors to outsiders and even to their neighbours. Um, and there's a, a fascinating quotation that he gives from a, a 16th century preacher talking about uh, an outbreak of plague uh, and how, as he puts it, um, gladsome salutations in meetings had been replaced by a diligent shunning of each other's presence for fear of infection. And reading that, a shiver went down my spine in a way. Mm. So, it was so recognisable. It could have been written yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, and so that what that did was kind of well the same as it did for us. I suppose it atomizes atomizes everyone, puts them behind their own doors, as it were. Yes, indeed, there is the famous story, uh, a bit of a legend, really, but the famous legend of the village of Iam in Derbyshire, where the plague strikes in sixteen sixty five, and the villagers make a collective decision to, to stay where they are 
not to not to flee the plague, um, so that so that while they may may catch the plague, they won't infect the rest of the of the countryside. So so this bit is often held up as an example of heroic altruism and social cohesion. Reading Andy Wood's book, you also want to ask about the about the other side of that, which is you know what happens in in the next village along. What happens in the neighbouring village when you hear there is there is plague in in the neighbourhood? Well, obviously you shut your doors, and when the when passing tramps or travellers or wayfarers come up, you know, asking for asking for bed for the night, you shut the door. So again, uh, as as constantly with with Andy Wood's book, uh, there there are the two sides of neighbourhood. There is the positive side of pulling together, uh, supporting each other. There is also the the negative side of shutting people out. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of fascinating and, as you say, rather uncanny parallels there. Um, Arnold Hunt, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Peter Parker and Arnold Hunt. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Molly Guinness. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.